0: morning again. Um, I think it's fitting that this morning when we talk about this story of Cornelius, it's really a story of family. Uh, yesterday was my mom's birthday, so I got the chance to go back to Southwest Philly where I grew up. And it's, it's really fascinating to go up to a place that You know, you grew up, like, what, 30, 25, 30 years ago? Because everything that was so big seems smaller. Everything that was so new and refreshing just seems old. And just, like, there was a skating rink that was, like, what we did on Friday nights is now a daycare center. So that was, like, an existential crisis for me. Um, But one of the things that was fun, though, was to see my cousins and see my mom, of course, but, but to see family. And I think that's what this story of Cornelius is really about. It's about family. So as we come together, as we listen this morning, I want us to just be reminded that we, are family not only as Harrisburg Brethren in Christ whether we're in matcha or whether we're physically here in this building on Derry Street but we are family with one another but we are God's family with one another and, and part of the work then for all of us is what is me what does it mean or how does God call us to be family so as we talk about Acts, the church then and now our big question has been what do we learn from them that helps us now but what's fascinating to me is that you know we're talking this morning about the church welcoming right and and a lot of people when they talk about this story of Cornelius they say this is the first you know gentile convert now I don't know who did their math right but it just doesn't add up because even if you're going through the book of Acts right we're assuming that on the day of Pentecost when these God-fearing Jews come from all over the known world from Africa from Asia from Middle East that there were no gentile converts after they went back We're also assuming that the Samaritans don't count as Gentile converts, even though they were Gentiles, right? And there's stories in in, in the first 10 chapters of of Philip or of different people going to the Samaritans. We're also assuming that even the Hellenistic Jews, when they went back, that there were no Gentile converts. But the biggest assumption for me is we're assuming that the Ethiopian, and again, this is significant, right? Because if you want Ethiopia as we think of it today, in the Old Testament especially, that's called Abyssinia in the Bible. So this Ethiopian is most likely South Sudanese or most, likely um, sub-Saharan African and and most likely looks like me or is darker than me so we're assuming that he doesn't count as a Gentile convert either right so if we're skipping all over those assumptions and all those people don't count then yes Cornelius might be you know the first Gentile convert but if he's not the first Gentile convert what is the significance of his story and that's kind of where we want to park this morning and I think the significance of his story is that God calls us to be family god's family and i think that's the significance we'll see here if you have your bibles turn with me in acts chapter 10 I'll be reading verses 23, kind of second half to 23, all the way to 48. As we think about what it means to be family, what does it mean for the church to welcome, um, as I read through this passage, I just want to invite you to, to think about, you know, what God is doing in this story, and then to make a note in your Bible to go back and read through the whole chapter of Acts 10 this week, because I think it'll not only give you a bigger framework, but it'll also give you a greater appreciation of the work that God is doing here. So Acts 10, starting at verse 23b, I'm calling it. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising an objection. any objection. May I ask you, though, why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Sent to Joppa for Simon, who was called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but God accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right." through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that we are family. We thank you that we are indeed your family. We thank you that you've called us to be family. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you call those people to Jesus Christ the people under our influence, the people in the world. We thank you that you've called us to faithfulness and following you. But we pray that how we live in our faithfulness and obedience to you is reflected in our family and those under our influence as we're all working to bring lost children home. God, we thank you for the hard work of of what it means to be family, to be family of God. So, Lord, we pray for strength. Lord, we pray for discernment. Lord, we pray for wisdom. Lord, we pray for love and mercy and compassion and grace. Help us to not just be family with one another, but to remember that all those who believe, whether in Africa and in Asia and in South America or even here in Harrisburg, that all those who believe are a part of God's family. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. I said it down there, but one of the the, the interesting things about the book of Acts is that we refer to it as the Acts of the Apostles, and it's probably one of the the greatest misnomers in all the scriptures, right? Because as you're going through the book of Acts, it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. When we left off a couple weeks ago, you know, Saul gets converted, and and Ananias goes to him, and and, then he's fasting for three days, and, and God has transformed his life. He's not yet the Apostle Paul, he's still Saul. And while he's still Saul, it's interesting because he grows in his faith, and he gets to a point where all the knowledge he had has now been converted into what Jesus believes and who Jesus is and significance of Jesus. So as he's growing, he becomes teaching the gospel. He moves from the law to the gospel and twice, first in Damascus where he was, and then in Jerusalem, people actually wanted to kill him because of what he was preaching about who Jesus is and twice he saved what's interesting though is that Saul as we remember was this great persecutor of the church of jailing people of seeing people who were killed so when he went to even the Christians and says no I am now one of you you can understand why they were a little bit skeptical Remember what Luke does in Acts a lot of times is he has foreshadowing. And we have met a guy named Barnabas right before the other Ananias and Sapphira, right? Barnabas was a faithful Christian um, who maybe had land in Cyprus, but he was a, a, a Hellenistic Jew. And he actually sold this land that he didn't need and gave it to Peter and he gave it to the apostles and laid it at his feet. So this same Barnabas now goes in front of the other Christians and says, no, 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 I vouch for Saul. And it's this incredible thing that this guy who we just had one line about selling his house now rises up and says, no, 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 no. You, I'm going to put my reputation, my faith on the line. I'm going to put how you see me and say that God has called Saul. And he doesn't just vouch him with his words. He invites Saul into ministry with him. They become partners in the church at Antioch, and they become partners on missionary journeys. So you can say not only is Saul's story important because Ananias leads him to faith or confirms his faith, but you can say that Barnabas is important to him too because Barnabas is the one who says he's okay he can come along. God has called him too. Another thing that's happening right before we get to our passage is that Luke does this a lot. You'll notice this as you're going through Acts, right? Before something significant, there's some healing. And what happens here is is Peter, right before this chapter, heals a a paralyzed man named Aeneas, and then a a disciple named Dorcas or Tabitha. I would go with Tabitha too. Um, I think Dorcas just doesn't roll off my tongue. If your name named Dorcas or have a family named Dorcas, just call him Tabitha. Um, but she's actually resurrected from the dead by Peter. So Luke is saying that something significant is happening. Because I want you to see that God is working in this powerful way. What's interesting is after he heals, he goes and stays with another Simon. Because remember his name was Simon Bar-Jonah, right? Simon, son of Jonah. But he stays with Simon the Tanner. And that's interesting because Peter, at this point, would still consider himself a very pious, obedient Jew. Well, those same pious, obedient Jews would not like leather tanners very much. Because, you see, the leather tanners, before you get the leather, you got to deal with the animal. Before you deal with the animal, you got to kill the animal, you know? So even tanners were considered unclean. And I think that's interesting that of all the places for Peter to stay— And we find out later that Peter's struggling with this unclean thing. But it is just this reminder to us that it's so much easier to see everyone else's uncleanness and forget about our own, right? Peter's struggling with unclean, but he's staying in the house of someone who's unclean, of someone who literally makes his living killing and dealing with animals. But that's not, that's a side point. That's where he is. And then the whole chapter nine kind of is summed up by this. And I love this. And I was like, man, I want this to be our church, right? It sums up by saying the church knows peace up in this point we talk about the church knowing jesus and the church knowing persecution right but now it says the church knows peace the church is strengthened by god the church grows in fear and reverence and obedience to god and the church is encouraged by the holy spirit may we know peace may we be strengthened by god may we grow in fear and reverence and obedience of god and may we be encouraged by the holy spirit amen and then we get to acts chapter 10 In Acts chapter 10, you know, it is, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the main character, but the characters that we see in the text are are, are Peter and Cornelius. I find them fascinating because they're almost foils, right? Foil is this idea, well, it's fine, we're in English class. Foil is this idea of two main characters who kind of complement each other in different ways, right? And you see that between Cornelius and Peter because in many levels, they're opposites. First of all, Cornelius is a Roman. I think we need to take a pause here and realize that This is a big deal. It's a big deal for Hellenistic Jews to accept the kingdom of God and accept Jesus, right? But you can be like, well, they were kind of Jews, you know, that's okay. You might take a step later and say, well, Samaritans, I'm not sure. But at least way back when we had a common ancestor and they're kind of parts of us, right? Um, The Ethiopian, you'd be like, well, he's in Africa anyway, right? He's in Africa, we don't see him, right? But to accept the Roman into your family is a big deal. This is the equivalent of going to 1847 Jackson, Mississippi and asking an African-American family to accept their slave master as one of their own. This is the equivalent of going to anywhere in these United States in 1747 and asking a Native American family to accept a white family who stole their land into their breakfast table as one of their own. The Romans were the oppressors. The Romans were the empires. They preached the gospel of peace, but their peace came by the sword. So you have to understand that when God is going to the Gentiles here, this is a big deal. God is going into the heart of the empire and saying, everyone belongs to me, if they will believe. We have to understand that this story isn't just a random story, but it's God's intentional work and salvation among all the nations. So he goes to Rome. He goes to the Roman, and he chooses a centurion. Now, centurions probably um, operated um, legionnaires of about 80 to 100, but I guess they just round up, you know? Politicians do that. You just round up their numbers. It could be 80, but we'll just call them centurion 100, right? But the thing that's important here is that centurions earned respect they weren't necessarily born into nobility right so to be a centurion it means that you have to have years of faithful service we'll call it but again what was rome and how did rome get power through the sword so you have this peace-loving people this peace-loving jesus who's going to someone who represents the empire on every level and someone who has a track record of killing for the empire sit with that for a second So he's a Roman. He's a centurion. But what I love about Cornelius is that his testimony might be better than most of us in this room and most of Christians today. Because it's interesting because a lot of scholars say, well, there's a lot of these God-fearers, and they're not fully converts to Judaism. But check out this halfway convert, this person who hasn't fully found God. Check out the testimony. Not only is he known in Rome, but among the Jews, he's known as devout, he's known as God-fearing, he's known as a gracious giver, and he's known as someone who prays. In fact, in the text, we find that he's praying at the same time the Jews were praying as well. And it's in one of these times of prayers that he has this vision, and in the vision, the angel tells him that I need you to send for this Peter which is funny to me because Peter's name again was Simon. So I was like, I need you to send from Simon from Simon. And after you bring this other Simon named Peter, I want you to send for him. And Cornelius gets two servants and, and probably a soldier to protect them, right? And he sends them on the way to get Peter. But what I love about Cornelius' story in this very beginning is that we learn that God is present, that God is working, and God is revealing even before we see it. Before we know Cornelius is a follower of Jesus, he's God-fearing. Before we know that Cornelius is coming into the kingdom, God has revealed himself to him. God has given him a a semblance of truth that allows him to pray to this God, to seek after this God, to serve the poor, and to actually be faithful and devout. And I think it should give us a, a sigh of relief. Because there's a lot of us who want to see the world saved, right? There's some of us like me who's just selfish. I want everybody saved that needs to get saved so heaven can come down. Like, that's my motivation. I want to be with Jesus. And until we get that last person, Jesus ain't coming. So let's get to work, right? That's my selfish motivation. But at the end of the day. At the end of the day, we need to know that we don't have to fear the roams of this world or the deep, dark places because God is already working. God is already revealing. God is already moving. And for us, the job is to what? To listen and then to obey. God's already ahead of you. And you see it in Cornelius' story. Peter had no idea who Cornelius was, but God had already been working and moving. And I love that God calls Cornelius and God directs Cornelius, even before Peter knows anything is going on. And Cornelius, a military man, who's all about chain of command, knows how to obey. And that's what he does. He's faithful in obedience. He's faithful in obedience. And it's interesting because Cornelius, again, is from Caesarea, which is this really important port city. They named it after Caesar because what they did is Herod the Great, I think, actually made all of the traitors have to get through um, of Caesarea because then he could tax them. It's interesting, right? You make all of them have to go through Caesarea so you could tax them. So I say all that to say is that Cornelius isn't just a regular soldier by any means. It's a reminder to us that yes this story about how God shows no favoritism of impartiality, but it's also a story that God chooses intentionally how God works. God knew that this guy Cornelius mattered. He knew that he was respected in Rome. He knew that he was respected among the Jews and God chose to reveal himself to him. So we have a God who's present, who's working and revealing, who's calling and directing even before we show up. That should give you relief in telling people about Jesus. Because it's never been about you and it doesn't ever have to be about you. Your job is to listen and to obey. Let the spirit convict. Let the story of Jesus be the one that calls them to him and let God love and save, amen? So that's what's happening on that side. And then we have Peter who's the polar opposite. If Cornelius is uh, an outsider and a Roman, Peter is a Jew not even allowed to talk to Gentiles or invite them into your house or eat with them. If, if Cornelius is outside the faith, Peter's the ultimate insider. Remember, Jesus probably spoke to what, hundreds of thousands? You know, maybe tens of thousands believed. Um, scripturally, we know that, you know, he sent out maybe 72. Of the 72, we had 12 disciples. Some of us are liberal with our counting, so we cut off Judas, so it's maybe 11 or 11 and a half, right? But of that 12, you can get down to 4, And the four in his inner circle are Peter, Andrew, James, and John. If Cornelius is the ultimate outsider, Peter is what? The ultimate insider. But like Cornelius, Peter is devout. He may have denied Jesus three times, but since that point, he's been one of the leaders of the early church. He preaches on the day of Pentecost. He's going around healing people. Peter is also someone who's God-fearing. He's a healer. He's a faithful prayer warrior. So what's interesting is when he has his vision. When he has his vision, it's the time of day where he's probably hungers around noon. And in his vision, heaven opens up three times. When I read this as a kid, right? I don't know what your ideas of heaven was. This was heaven for me. Like, I didn't understand Peter's struggle. Like, when he, when heaven opened up, the sheet opened up, and all these delicious things fell out, you know? And I'm just like, this is heaven. You know, as a Liberian, West African, proud man, you show me meat, that's heaven, right? And Peter's like, but God, I can't eat it, it's unclean. And it opens up not once, not twice, but three times. And three times, and God is showing him that everything I have called, everything I have called mine, everything that I call pure, don't you dare call it impure or unclean. What's interesting is if you look at the text in the chronological or the, just the time order of the text, Peter doesn't even understand the vision as it's happening. I think that's an important place for us to pause because it tells us that God is also working before our vision comes to fruition. God may give you a vision for something he's calling you to do. And sometimes if you're me, you get paralyzed thinking about, well, God, how am I going to do it? What are the steps I'm going to take? I just don't know how to get there. And God seems to be like, let me worry about that. God gives Peter the vision, and Peter is struggling and being like, man, God, I just can't eat cheeseburgers, you know? That's meat and cheese that's not kosher. God, I just can't eat mussels. I can't eat shrimp. I can't eat lobster. Again, this is why Peter is probably a better follower of Jesus than me, because this would have been a day of celebration for me. Bring all the cheeseburgers. Put some bacon on top, too. Make it all real, not kosher. But for Peter, that's his struggle. That's all he understands. Is like, God, why are you calling me to eat these things that are unclean? That's his struggle. And I think it's important to not minimize it too much because this is something that they've understood about God for generations. Eating kosher was a chance to not just be legalistic necessarily, but to be faithful to God and what God's called you to be. So for Peter, it's an existential crisis and he doesn't understand all that's going on. He's still sorting it out. But before the vision comes to fruition, and this should encourage your spirit, because why? God sends people to move the vision along. God gives him the vision. He doesn't understand it. It's not full, but who's knocking at his door downstairs? But the men that Cornelius or the people that Cornelius had sent. And I love that because, again, the spirit comes to Peter and says, no, go down, talk to those people and invite them in. And it's important that the spirit does that because Peter would have had his second existential crisis of the day. Because, again, Jews were not supposed to interact with Gentiles. And Peter, as a leader, even as a Christian now, would be looked down upon for interacting with Gentiles. But the spirit comes and says, no, 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 no. I've sent them to you. They're looking for you, invite them in. And Peter does what? He obeys. And I love that our God looks at the Roman centurion and the Jewish early church leader as both people who can be faithful to him, as both people who can be devout in following him, as people who can give and help the poor, as people who can see and listen and obey him. Our God shows no partiality. And so after Peter invites these people in and visit they head out on a journey to Caesarea. And as they're journeying, it's interesting because some of the believers tagged along and, and one of the first things I read this I'm like that's so cool. God is moving and you know these church people they just want to go see where God's moving. But then I realized something about vision. We know Cornelius has a vision. We know Peter has a vision. We're not guaranteed that these followers who tag along also know of the vision or following because of the vision. And I don't know about you, but sometimes church folk will show up not because God is moving, because they want to make sure you're doing what's right. They want to show up not because God is asking you or God's calling you to do something, but they want to make sure you're doing it the right way. And I think that was some of this lot. I don't think they were just going to Caesarea and be like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Look at what God's doing. I think they're going, it's like, why is Peter hanging out with these Gentiles? And you'll find this out true in the rest of Acts, right? Why is Peter going to Caesarea? Like, literally, the Romans kill us, and we're going to one of their highest generals in one of their most important cities, for do what? So he has this group that's tagging along. Maybe some are excited about the gospel. Maybe some are just, like, trying to make sure he's not straying, right? But this whole group tag along. And I love that when he reaches Cornelius' house, Cornelius welcomes him in. It's important to us. And again, as we go out into the world, and I don't just mean Macha or Liberia. I don't just mean Bogota or Belarus, right? I don't just mean, you know, I, I, I watch an Olympics. That's my favorite part of the Olympics is the finding out there's new countries in the world, right? Like Vanuatu, right? It's just amazing. Um, it's not just where we go, but it's wherever we go, wherever we go, God is already there. Peter goes into the heart of the Roman Empire in the heart of Romans power he walks into the house of the centurion and the centurion welcomes him and that gives me a little bit of peace knowing that no matter what darkness I think is in this world when I go God's already there and I will be welcomed in it means that whatever brokenness I walk into God is already there and God will be there showing me that that's where I need to be what's interesting is that you know we can't always just shake off our culture And so, what happens here is the centurion, in his Roman understanding of, of religion, sees that there's not just people who follow God or the gods, but some of these people might be gods themselves. So, when he sees Peter, he bows down to Peter. He bows down and says, Oh, Holy One, right? And Peter says, No, 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 I'm just a man myself. I need you to stand up. And that's significant because, again, Cornelius is a soldier. Soldiers may not love it, but one of the things they know, and one of the few things they know for sure, sure, is chain of command. So I think Caesarea and and all the people gathered would be shocked that not only is Cornelius following the chain of command, but Peter is saying, in Jesus Christ, we are all the same. In Jesus Christ, we don't bow down to one another. In Jesus Christ, yes, you're a Roman centurion, but you are now my brother. And I think it's important that he says, I'm not God. You don't have to bow to me. And then Peter learns now as the vision comes to fruition that no one that God calls impure, or no one that God calls pure, he can't call impure. That no one God makes clean, he can't call unclean. And I love that even though he's staying at the house of a tanner who's unclean, even though he's welcomed in Gentiles that he wasn't supposed to do, he still hasn't gotten it through his head. But it finally clicks. It's grace over law. It's welcoming over rejecting. But more than that, it's seeking God and listening and obeying to God over seeking self and listening to obey yourself. And after it all clicks, Peter says, but why am I here? And Cornelius fills in the gap, right? He says, yo, I was praying, I had this vision, this angel came to me, and it said, sends for Simon, you know, Simon, not the Simon the Tanner, where you were saying, but you, Simon, Peter, send for you to come to me. Now, what's interesting, though, is that when Peter has his vision, he has it in a place called Joppa. And now, most of us, we skip over that. But our God is very intentional, because Joppa in this New Testament passage is the same Joppa we find Jonah in. And you remember the story of Jonah, right? What does God call Jonah to do? To take the gospel out of Israel into the power of its day, Nineveh. Our God is intentional. And he's so intentional that what was another name for Simon Peter? Simon bar Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. And I don't know if it's Luke or the Holy Spirit or some combination, but I, as a Bible nerd, think this is beautiful, that they both happened in Joppa, that that Jonah was the prophet who goes to Nineveh, and that Simon, the son of Jonah, or us, son of Jonah, now gets to Rome the power of the day. Our God is intentional. What you think is just your little bit of obedience might be God working things way beyond you can see to push the kingdom forward. That's why every little glass of water is important. That's why every good deed is important. That's why every act of love is important. Your obedience to God is always going to be bigger than you see, bigger than you know. So the son of Jonah now goes to the power of the day, and he shows up, and he fills in the gap. And I love this, because we know God loves all. But there's a significant thing that I think is really important for us to hear to our culture today. Because Peter says something that's easy to miss. Because if I say God loves everyone, most of us will agree. Most of us know God that way. Most of us don't necessarily struggle with that. But there's something that Peter says here that I've missed. Until this week, and I'm like, oh, that's, that's different. But Peter says God accepts all people. God shows no favoritism. God accepts all people who obey and do what's right. God loving all isn't the issue but if you want to come into God's family, you have to be obedient to God. If you want to be a member of God's family, you have to have a life of doing what's right. We can't debate God loves everyone, God loves everyone. But if you want entrance into God's family, according to Peter, you have to obey God. You have to do what's right. And I think that's very, very significant because we're going to argue about God loving everyone and God welcoming everyone. God loves everyone. God welcomes everyone. But if you want to be in God's family, Jesus has to be Lord. Because remember the Romans, centurions, and all the soldiers, they pledged what? That Caesar is Lord. But in this family, Jesus is Lord of all. You want to come into God's family? Do what's right, yes, but obey God and God alone. And he preaches this message. And I love that the Romans thought they had a gospel of peace. They had a good news of peace. Even though they might kill a bunch of people and conquer a bunch of cities, they were the peace people. But Peter says, no, Jesus Christ has come to give you the evangelion, the good news, the gospel of peace. But what is the gospel but that Jesus left heaven to come to earth, that Jesus walked the earth, that Jesus died on Calvary Street, that Jesus was raised from the dead, that Jesus is now working on heaven until it's perfect. And that when the last person is saved, that Jesus will come back again. That's the gospel of peace. To the Roman centurion who knew peace through war, Peter is saying, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ brings peace through his dying. And he continues by saying, God's spirit is at work in Jesus. We've seen it. And we as people, we have even ate with the resurrected Jesus. Because centurions and the Romans would have understood spirit world. They would have understood that like sometimes God might rise up and be among you but these gods would never eat with you. And Peter is saying, no, 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 Jesus is alive. He's a person. He came back in his body. We testify of what Jesus has done. And I love this because in the middle of this, I say, I don't know, you, don't, you might not do this, but I rank sermons, right? This is Peter's second greatest sermon ever, right? The first one's Pentecost. 3,000 people are saved, they go back into the world, right? This is the second one because, again, this is significant what's happening here. But in the middle of this, Peter must have been feeling himself, right? He's just like, I'm knocking this out of the park. Look at me. I'm telling my Jesus, I'm connecting the dots, the vision's coming to fruition. He's on his own tangent. But then the Holy Spirit comes down. I love what Ryan said last week. Sometimes we might be faithful and just doing our own thing, and then the Holy Spirit just shows up and and just flips everything, right? And that's what happens. And this is also significant because when the Holy Spirit comes down, the people start speaking in tongues. And I love that the God-fearing Jews or the followers who are also along with Peter, they're shocked. They're shocked that the Holy Spirit has come down because they believe the Holy Spirit belonged to them. And it's a reminder to us as good church folk that the Holy Spirit doesn't just belong to us. That God will move how God will move. That God will come to who God wants to come to. And the Holy Spirit comes down and they're amazed that God is among the Gentiles. And it's after they see all this, Peter looks down and says, the next step has to be baptism. They believe the Spirit is with them. This is the next step. So what is this story about? When we talk about Peter and Cornelius, it's not about Cornelius being the first Gentile convert. I think we can argue that's not even true. I think it's about simply this. Salvation is individual, yes. But not only individual, but also communal. I think we have to hold this point because in our culture we say, are you saved? Do you follow Jesus? How's your relationship with Jesus? And I'm not saying that's not important. On a day of judgment, you're not going to get before God and be like, well, Hank is going to vouch for me. You know, Hank's my Barnabas. Like, are you saved, Hank? What do you think? Like, that's not how it's going to work. You're going to have to answer to God. So those are important questions. Are you saved? Are you following Jesus? Do you believe? How have you been faithful to Jesus? All those individual questions are important. But salvation isn't just about you. Even more than that, your salvation isn't even just about you either because it's meant to be communal. It's meant to say, how, are, how is you being saved impacting the world that you're in? what is the story of your salvation telling to the people under your influence what is the story of you following jesus how is it inviting people into the kingdom that's what we mean by salvation is communal and it's an interesting note is that we know that uh, is cornelius his family or cornelius his household that comes to salvation but here's the part we might not know centurions were forbidden to get married so yeah I take a step back if they're forbidden to get married who is this family or who is this household now they weren't followers of jesus they were romans so they might skirt the rules a little bit and they might have concubines you know one two three four five right so there's a you could say maybe he had like not state authorized marriages but he had relationships and children you could say that but as you read through the whole chapter you realize that it's not just family members it's it's people who are servants people who might have been under his command it was everyone under his influence I think that's significant, because when he is converted to Jesus, he thinks it's important that everyone under his influence knows as well. And how blessed will our world be? How much will the kingdom of Jesus grow if we thought the same way? That because I'm saved, everyone under my influence should be impacted with that truth. If Jesus has called me, they all should know that Jesus has called me. If Jesus is working in my life, everyone under my influence, so not just your son or grandson who doesn't believe, not just your neighbor who doesn't believe, not just your coworker who doesn't believe, every single person under your influence should know that Jesus has saved you, that Jesus is working for you, and that Jesus is working through you. Salvation isn't just about you. For God so loved the world. Your salvation is meant to impact your influence, your spheres of influence. There's a story I tell every decade or so, so if you've been here more than 10 years, you've probably heard it, but it's one of my favorite stories of salvation ever, and I don't think there's anything that, that for me anyway, accentuates this point of salvation being communal than this story. Decades ago, and off the coast of Papua New Guinea, one of the islands, there was a group of Wycliffe missionaries, and we have Wycliffe missionaries in our church, we know they're brilliant, they're doing good work of translating, but sometimes in translation, not everything can translate. So they're in the middle of the the South Pacific, or yeah, South Pacific, they're in the middle of Papua New Guinea, and they got to the passage in John where John says, "What? behold, the Lamb of God. And they look around, and they look at this tribe and says, wow, hmm, lamb, that's going to be interesting. How do we describe an animal they have no concept of, right? And this is 60 years ago, so we know for sure there's no Google. You know, they can't just pick up a picture and be like, this is what it looks like. People had no concept of what does it mean to be the Lamb of God, but they wanted to be faithful because they felt like this idea that Jesus is an unblemished, Jesus did not sin, Jesus was a sacrifice for us so that we can be saved, it's so crucial to what they wanted these people to know that they're like, God, how do we teach this? But then they asked a question that I think all of us must ask. It's so easy to critique the culture around us. It's so easy to tell everything that's wrong with the culture around us, but you know the question those Wycliffe translators asked? They said simply this, God, Where are you already at work within this culture that can help us connect the gap? To me, that's a holy question. I can tell you everything that's wrong with the culture, at least most of it, right? But I don't ask enough, God, where are you already at work here that can help me connect this gap? And as part of that prayer, they decided to take a step back. When they took a step back, they said they prayerfully was looking at the tribe, looking at the people, trying to find some connection. And I love that this is a kosher story about eating unclean and unclean. I mean, I love cheeseburgers. I just pray. I'm glad I'm not a Jew. I'm telling you. If God told me I can't have bacon cheeseburgers, we would have conversations. I'd probably become a better prayer warrior, to be honest. Uh, um, But I love that in this kosher chapter, we're going to have this story about Jesus being the pig of God. Because what they discovered is that in this tribe, pigs kind of had two tracks, right? The first track would be pigs who were like family pets. You know, kind of like you going and buying a puppy, families would go and, and barter and get a little pig, right? And we raise the pig as a member of the family, and some of the, the, the family, will call them the liberals, right? Some of the liberals in the family would treat that pig like a child, and some of the women would even breastfeed the pig. I say they treated the pig like a child, they treated the pig like a child. There was also some of these pigs who were treated like children, some of them were also, though, prepared just for sacrifice, and what was interesting about these pigs is they were unblemished is that they were prepared their whole lives and they were given a sacrifice why was this important it's important because in this culture in this tribe whenever a new person would come to visit all the pigs that were prepared for sacrifice would be gathered and they would debate among themselves right who has the best pig and i'm like i love these people already who has the best pig right and then whoever has the best pig the pig would be sacrificed And after the pig is sacrificed, they would break bread. And at that table, they would say, we are now family. Because what they believed is that every time a new person walked in, there was something thrown off in the spirit world, right? So the pig being sacrificed would reconcile the spirit world, but then the pig being sacrificed, them losing that member of the family is given up because you as a new person are now invited and you by eating the pig would become a part of the family. And it hits the Wycliffe translators, oh my goodness, Jesus is the pig of God. And for us, it's just like, man, that's weird. I don't even get that. But I would venture to say that that tribe in Papua New Guinea has a better understanding that Jesus is the Lamb of God than we ever will. Than we ever will. Why? Because to them, the idea that a member of God's family would come down and sacrifice himself so that they can enter into God's family is so amazing. So the Wycliffe translators, when it finally dawns upon them, it's kind of, I, I, I pictured myself in the scene because I'm like, this is how I feel sometimes preaching, right? You just throw it out there and hope it sticks. You're like, spirit, do your work. You know, I did mine. Here you go. But you see, they gathered the tribe around, right? So all the leaders of the tribe, the chiefs and the chieftains all gathered and their wives behind them. And then right behind them were their children, behind the children were the servants and, and everyone else is gathered and they're all gathered around. And a Wycliffe translator gets gets in front of the people and is like, we have to tell you this story about this Jesus. The Jesus we're calling you to follow is the one who was unblemished, is the one who was without sin. Is the one from God's family who was sent to die for you is the one who makes your, not just the spiritual world at peace, but your spirit at peace with God's spirit, is the one who forgives you of your sins. And by you believing in Jesus, you not only eat and consume the pig, but you get the blessing of being reconciled to God. By you believing in Jesus, you accept the invitation of being God's child. Jesus is the pig of God. And the chiefs hear the message, and they're amazed. And they go to their community, so they turn quickly to the wives, and they tell the wives. The wives turn quickly and tell the children. The children tell the servants, and you hear it passing on and on and on. As you see the rustle through the crowd, then you hear weeping. Not just like the whole weeping and gnashing of teeth, but a joyous weeping of what it means. They're like, oh my goodness, the God of this universe has sent his son for me. And the people start weeping because they realize that this God loves them so much that he has sent his son for them. Jesus is the pig of God. Again, doesn't make sense in our sensibilities, but in that tribe, it helped them to understand that the God of this universe so loved them that Jesus came. So I think when we think about salvation, we think about Cornelius, let us hold on to the fact that yes, he came to salvation, but it was so important to him that he wanted everyone under his influence to know. So that's the challenge for us to not just believe in Jesus and choose to follow Jesus, but to ask the question of, is everyone under my sphere of influence, what do they know about Jesus because of me? I'd like to invite up the worship team. We're gonna end by singing this song, I need you. I need you to survive. I'd like to invite any pastors in the room up front. We'd love to pray for you if there's something you wanna respond to in the service or if there's something you have going on this week or this month or this year, we'd love to pray for you about that as well. But as we sing this song, I want us to be thinking of this original idea we started with is like, what does it mean that we are family? Because I think if we recognize that the people under our spheres of influence, we need them to survive, not just spiritually or emotionally, but we need them to survive in our faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So as we sing, I need you to survive, may we be challenged and reminded that our God has saved us for our world. That our God has saved us so the people on our spheres of influence can know that we need each other to survive And our God has saved us to bring the world back home again. Let's stand and sing together. one of the last vestiges of me being a a marketing underground Um, Underground, (laughs) undergrad, um, is that I love catchphrases. And as being a millennial and a product of my environment, catchphrases help me remember things, right? So if you've been around here, you've heard me say stuff like, on earth as it is in heaven, right? Or we're loved to loved, or live in love like Jesus. I love these things because they help me hold on to the faith. And for the last probably three to six months, you know, I've just been really, really stuck on this simple idea of like, you know, we are loved to loved, we are grace to grace, we are blessed to blessed. And I think if we understand our salvation under those terms, and realize that God has saved me so that he can save others. That God has blessed me so that I can bless others. That God has literally graced me so I can grace others. That God has loved me so I can love others. If we hold our salvation that way, we will not only get a, a better understanding of what happens in Acts 10 and Cornelius and the people under his fears of influence, we'll begin to see that God has saved us for our world. I find our God, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, the unblemished lamb of God, the one who chose to enter into this space, to walk this earth, to show us how to love, show us how to please God, but Lord, we thank you that you were sacrificed on Calvary's tree, that by faith and believing in you, we can have not only salvation, but eternal life and the power of the Holy Spirit, that we now only are drawn to you, but we're now led by you and sent out by you. And, Lord, we thank you that even right now you're preparing heaven for us and and we wait joyously until the day you will come again. But now, Lord, as we're here, while we wait, help us to work. Because you have saved us so that through us others can be saved. You have loved us so that through us others can know your love. You have blessed us so that through us others can know your blessing. And, Lord, you have graced us so that others can know the power of your healing grace. God, thank you for saving us. God, help us in partnership with the Holy Spirit, in partnership with the church here in Harrisburg, around the world, even all throughout history. Help us to do the work of on earth as it is in heaven. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. God bless you all, have a great week.